All right, one thing that I love about hanging out with kids is you get to know the parents of the kids by hanging out with the kids, right? Like, sure, I know you're going, no, my child's a special individual snowflake. You don't get to know me. They are just special. But what I noticed is when you hang out with kids, you just inadvertently get to know the parents, especially when I was a teacher. There was a time when I was a PE teacher and a bunch of other kinds of teacher stuff over the years. And, and what I noticed is you get to know these parents without ever meeting, right? Like you have the second grader sitting in front of you that just starts spouting off all of these political beliefs all of a sudden. And you're like, dude, you don't even know how to wash your hands, okay? Like, you can't even spell ballot, all right? Like, calm down, all right? Let's work on tying our shoes. And so you get to know, okay, you get to know, okay, this parent, I know their, their political leanings, or this kid's just watching a ton of uh, whatever particular media outlet, uh, like somehow. And so, uh, and so you get to know them. So parents, be careful what you're saying. We're hearing it in kids' church. Um, my kids, you get, to know, you get to know that their dad grew up in the 90s, uh, because of the, the vernacular that my kids use. So if something good happens to my kid, I love it. Uh, my kids, I love it. They say, man, that's sick. Like, they'll just be like, that's so sick, Dad. And I'm like, that is sick. Keep saying that. Like, at some point in junior high, someone's going to be like, what, what are you saying? Right? Like, why are you saying this? So, so you, get to know ki- you get to know parents, through their kids. Like if you get to know the kids, you get to know the parents, you get to know the way they talk, the way they think, these different kinds of things. And what I've noticed in the Bible is when we have these different characters in the Bible who are real people who really existed in real places in real times, what I've noticed is that those real people, they actually often help us to get to know God. Like when we get to know these characters, when we get to see these characters, we often get to see how God works in their life, who God is, and what he does. And so today, we are starting the last stretch of our We Want a King series. We've been in this series for the last few months where we're looking at the first three kings of Israel. First, we looked at King Saul. Then we looked at King David. And today, we're going to be looking at King Solomon, who's one of David's sons. And today will really be an intro into King Solomon, what he's about, the kind of king he is. And we'll spend the next uh, five weeks, including today, looking at King Solomon and his life. And what I noticed as I read through this introduction of King Solomon is that I just felt like I was getting to know God. Like I was seeing how God was interacting with Solomon. I was seeing what God was doing through Solomon. And I I just felt like I was getting to know God. And so here's what we're going to do today. We're going to be in 1 Kings chapter 3. We're going to go through most of it together. I'll summarize some of it for us as we go along. We'll have a nice, lovely story time as we've been doing as we've been in this series for the first part of the sermon. And then after that, I want to spend time looking at three things we see about God, three characteristics of God, three parts of who God is by looking at the life of King Solomon and the introduction of King Solomon. So that's where we're going to be today. Let's hop into it. Uh, to hop into it, though, I want to give us a little bit of a summary of how First Kings uh, starts. So last we were in this series, which was two weeks ago because we had our 10th anniversary last week, uh, we saw the end of David's life, and David is now gone. And First Kings kind of picks up where Second Samuel leaves off. And so David's still alive uh, at the beginning of First Kings, and uh, he has this servant girl that they've brought in to like, care for him because he's just getting older and older and can't care for himself. 
And one of David's sons, Adonijah, he decides to make himself king. And so he just starts doing king things and saying, hey, I'm the king. Then meanwhile, what happens, and, and this is in 1 Kings chapters 1 and 2, what happens is Bathsheba and the prophet Nathan go to David and say, hey, this is not, Adonijah's made himself king. This is not what we talked about. You made an oath saying that you were going to make Solomon king. And so, David, now's the time. you got to make your son king now or never, or this other son of yours is going to become king. And so David says, okay, I'll do it. And so they go through the whole ceremony and do all this stuff to make sure Solomon is the official king. David leaves Solomon with some words, uh, essentially saying, hey, follow God. Like, as you're a king, follow God, follow the statutes, follow the law, make sure you're a king that follows his word. And so, uh, basically, what happens after that is Adonijah is officially not the king, and he knows it because Solomon is officially the king, and so this is Solomon's brother. And so Adonijah, then, he kind of does this, he, he does this thing that's either really stupid or dastardly. We're not really sure. The text doesn't spell it out for us. But he goes to Bathsheba, Solomon's mom, and he says, hey, I'd love to marry that servant girl that's been serving David until his death. And so what had happened, we know David's kind of a dirty dog. They had brought in this beautiful servant girl, and she was serving him, and there was nothing sexual between them, the text also says, but she was just kind of his, his handmaid or whatever. And that, and what that looked like to the rest of Israel was like, oh, this is his newest wife. This is his wife in his twilight years, the end of his life. And so Adonijah says, hey, can I marry her? Which in that time, if you were a king, declaring you were a king to a whole people, what those kings often did, as we've seen throughout this series, is they would take the wives of the previous king and make them their own wives. And so uh, we don't know if that's what Adonijah is doing, but he's either just being really stupid and he had a really big crush that he probably should have buried deep in his soul, or, or he was trying to say, hey, I know Solomon's the official king, but I'm really the king. So Bathsheba goes to Solomon. She says, Solomon, hey, heads up. Adonijah, this is what he asked me for. I think we should let him marry her. And Solomon just gets enraged. He's like, no way I'm going to do this. This guy's trying to say he's king. So he kills his brother. He has his brother killed. And Joab, David's old general and commander, he had kind of aligned himself with Adonijah. And so Solomon goes, kill him too. And then he exiles a priest. And, and so this is how Solomon's kingship really starts. With his mom and this prophet going, hey, let's make him king. Solomon becomes king. His brother's doing some shady stuff. So he has his brother killed. And then this is Solomon, right? Like this is, he's king. Like he's, this is how he has fought for his power. And so it starts with David dead. Solomon is king. And then he killed some people and exiled some people as his first acts as king. And so let's hop into 1 Kings 3. That gives us a little bit of background of where we're at in the book of 1 Kings. And what we're going to see in 1 Kings 3 is an introduction to Solomon. It's almost like the, the author realized he wanted to introduce Solomon, but right as soon as Solomon became king, all these different kinds of things happened, and so he had to talk through those stories. And then it's like the author realized in chapter 3, okay, now I'm going to introduce who Solomon is. And what he does in the first three verses is he talks through these details that I'm going to highlight in pointing out who Solomon is in our introduction to him. So, 1 Kings chapter 3, we'll, we'll read the first three verses. 
says this. Solomon made a marriage alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt. He took Pharaoh's daughter and brought her into the city of David until he had finished building his own house and the house of the Lord and the wall around Jerusalem. The people were sacrificing at the high places. However, because no house had yet been built for the name of the Lord. Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of David his father. Only he sacrificed and made offerings at the high places. Okay, let's pause there for a little bit. And so this author, as they are now reintroducing Solomon, or really introducing Solomon for the first time, there's a few little details this author gives before hopping into the story and stories that we're going to be in today. And so these three details, we could kind of read through it fast in our time and place and not realize the author is saying some very crucial things about Solomon that if we lived in that time, we would have been going like, wait, what? What was that? Like, tell me more about that. Uh, And it it would mean a lot more to us in understanding who Solomon is. And so the first detail in introducing Solomon to us, he says that Solomon takes Pharaoh's daughter as his wife. Now, here's the thing about the Bible and the Old Testament. The Egyptians are the bad guys in the, in the, in the okay? Like, if, you're, if you go read through Exodus, the Egyptians are the bad guys in the, in the book of Exodus, okay? And so anytime you're reading the Old Testament, and maybe not every time, but a lot of the times you're reading the Old Testament, and there's a reference to Egypt, or there's uh, Egypt shows back up in the story, it's almost like we should be reading it and going, uh-oh, the bad guys are back, Right? Not because they're any worse than any other humans, but, but that's just because of the narrative of the story. Like these were people who had enslaved the Israelites, even forced them in certain ways to worship other gods, and God had redeemed them and brought them out of that. And so anytime an author is going out of its way in the Old Testament to say something about Egypt or point out a detail about Egypt, the author is probably trying to get the readers to go, uh-oh, something's wrong here. And then further, a problem with this was, was Solomon marrying a a foreign wife, which God didn't have for his people in that time. Not because of racism or ethnocentrism, because if you read the Old Testament, you'll see there are all sorts of ways that anybody from any nation could become part of the people of Israel, because God's arms are wide. But... Part of why God had that rule for his people, and I would think especially for his kings, was to have a purity of worship. Back then, when you're marrying someone of a different country, they would be, have a different religion and different gods with them, and very quickly, their faiths would be mixed. The religion would be mixed. And so that uh, prohibition that God had for the people of God in that time was essentially saying, don't mix your faith with other faiths. And so right away... The first detail that this author is giving in 1 Kings 3 is kind of going like, uh-oh, uh, these aren't maybe not the best, uh, this is maybe not the best trajectory that Solomon has for his life. Uh, another detail, the second kind of detail in there that really points out is that Solomon worships at the high places. Solomon worships at the high places. These aren't um, marijuana dispensaries, but they were actually... Uh, um, like buildings and structures that other religions used to worship their gods. And so something happened in Israel where they started building these structures because they weren't all using the tabernacle anymore. There was no official temple, as it says, where they started 
worshiping Yahweh, it seems, at these high places, but also probably worshiping these other gods or also just worshiping those gods at, the, at those places at times. And so the author puts that detail in there because in the rest of Kings, we're going to see that a king is marked whether or not he's faithful as a king by if he worshiped at the high places or not. So as you read the rest of the book of First, first and Second Kings, it will say, hey, that king worshiped at the high places, that, kingdom didn't worship, that king didn't worship at the high places. And so it does seem, again, the author is wanting to give us a troubling detail about Solomon's life, saying, hey, his worship of Yahweh, which is the name of God in the Old Testament, you, the, his worship of Yahweh was mixed at best. And so, uh, so again, I think the author's trying to get us to say, uh-oh, uh, early on in Solomon's story, so then later in his life we won't be so surprised. Uh, the, third, the third detail the author provides about Solomon is he says that Solomon loved the Lord. Solomon loved the Lord. I think that's how verse 3 begins. And, and I think the author puts this here to give us a full picture of Solomon. I think this is here just to simply go like, people are complicated. Solomon is complicated. It could be really easy to paint Solomon all with one brush. Like if he just used those first two details, we might go, ah, he seems kind of like not the best. But then you get to verse 3 and you see that he loves the Lord. He's, he's trying to follow in his father's ways, which is following the word of God, following the Pentateuch in particular, following those laws. And so I, I think the author wants us to see that Solomon is complicated. He's not all good. He's not all bad. He's a human, right? He's a full human. He's, he's a lot more like us than we'd care to a man, okay? So let's keep going in this story. What happens next in the story in verse 4 is Solomon goes up to one of these high places to worship God. And it does seem to me that Solomon worships Yahweh at these high places. So I don't know if he was mixing his worship by worshiping other gods. Uh, he might have been just simply mixing his worship by worshiping in these structures that were two other gods, but he would worship to his own God. And so he goes up to this uh, one of these high places and he, he does a sacrifice, and, and then we see what happens in verse Verse 5, it says this, At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night. And God said, Ask what I shall give you. Okay, so let's pause there for a second. So the Lord appears to Solomon in a dream. I'm not even kidding you guys. All the time I'm like, God, give me one of those dreams. You know, like give me one of these dreams as I go to bed. Never have. I have terrifying demonic dreams instead. And so <laughs> I'm just kidding. Uh, and so... Solomon goes to sleep at Gibeon where he was just worshiping at this high place and the Lord appears to him a dream, in a dream and he essentially says, hey, ask for something. Ask for anything you want. God gives him a wish. This is like the only time God's like, hey, I'm a genie, right? Like this is like the only time in the Bible you see something like this, but God's like, ask me for something. And Solomon starts to respond by saying, man, you've been so good to my father, David. You've been so good to me. You've held up the, your, your side of the covenant, his side of the covenant. You're faithful to this people. I am now ruling a multitude of people because of your faithfulness. And then we see Solomon's response of what he wants in verse 9. He says this, Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to govern this your great people? Verse 10, it pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this. 
And God said to him, because you've asked this and not asked for yourself long life or riches or the life of your enemies, but you have asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right. Behold, I now do according to your word. Behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind so that none like you has ever been before and none like you shall arise after you. And so let's pause there. And so God says, Here's, have a wish. And Solomon goes, I want wisdom. I want to be able to understand you. I want to, I want to be able to understand what it means to rule these people of Israel. It, it's confusing. I don't know what to do. I wonder if, if Solomon was rethinking some of his first actions as king. He's like, man, I just killed a couple guys like real quick. Uh, this is a little bit harder for me to do than I realized. And so Solomon is, says, please give me this wisdom. And the Lord says, man, I love that that's what you're asking for. You're asking for a gift that will help you serve my people. I'm going to give you that. I love that you didn't ask for me to just kill all your enemies or to give you riches. I love it so much, I'm going to give you riches and things along with that wisdom. I'm going to make you the wisest person ever. I'm going to make you the wisest king ever. There will be no one before you wiser. There's no one coming after you that's wiser. And so God does this thing where he like gives Solomon the superpower of wisdom and that's kind of how we, a bit how we're introduced to Solomon. And then what we're going to see in the rest of uh, 1 Kings chapter 3 is that miraculous wisdom being embodied and used by Solomon in a particular difficult-to-understand situation. So let's read the situation that comes up for him as king where he gets to use this wisdom. Verse 16. Then two prostitutes came to the king and stood before him. The one woman said, Oh, my Lord, this woman and I live in the same house, and I gave birth to a child while she was in the house. Then on the third day after I gave birth, this woman also gave birth, and we were alone. There was no one else with us in the house. Only we two were in the house. And this woman's son died in the night because she lay on him. And she arose at midnight and took my son from beside me while your servant slept and laid him at her breast and laid her dead son at my breast. When I rose in the morning to nurse my child, behold, he was dead. But when I looked at him closely in the morning, behold, he was not the child that I had born. But the other woman said, no, the living child is mine and the dead child is yours. The first said, no, the dead child is yours and the living child is mine. Thus they spoke before the king. All right, the classic case of whose baby is it, all right? And it's not a Maury episode, okay? I, I pride myself in those episodes to be able to, yeah, that's the dad. It, it, it's, just a, it's just a difficult, that's a, you have to grow up without cable and know what I'm talking about right there. And so, um, and so these two women go, hey, it's my baby, it's my baby. This is one of the most difficult kinds of things to solve. When you got two people whose word is against each other and there's no witnesses to it. This is one of the most difficult kinds of things to solve Ever. And so this is the case that's presented to Solomon right after we hear about him getting this sort of miraculous wisdom from God. Okay? And so many of you have heard this story many times, but I'm going to read it uh, all the way through. Verse 24, it says this And the king said, Bring me a sword. So a sword was brought before the king. And the king said, divide the living child in two and give half to the one and half to the other. I imagine the guy that brought the sword at this point was going, ah, ah, I, ah. You, could you tell me why but next time? Like, tell me why. You could get the sword yourself in this scenario. So he says, divide the living child in two 
And then this is what it says in verse 26. Then the woman, whose son was alive, said to the king, Because her heart yearned for her son, O my Lord, give her the living child, and by no means put him to death. But the other said, He shall be neither mine nor yours. Divide him. Then the king answered and said, Give the living child to the first woman, and by no means put him to death. She is his mother. And all Israel heard of the judgment that the king had rendered. And they stood in awe of the king because they perceived that the wisdom of God was in him to do justice. And so we have this story where, where Solomon gets this miraculous wisdom. And then we see it displayed in one of the most impossible situations to have wisdom. He sets up this scenario. He says, give me the sword. And remember, these are much more brutal times back then. I, I really actually think kings probably did all kinds of crazy stuff like this in order to bring about their vision of justice. And so the king says, okay, let's, let's cut the baby in half and give one half to one mom, one half to the other mom. And, and, and of course, the real mom goes, no, like, okay, just give it to her. I'm fine. She can have the baby. Meanwhile, the baby stealer mom goes, no, kill him. Yeah, let's divide in half. That's equal. That's fair. I don't want either of us to have the baby. And Solomon goes, first, come on, be smart about your answers here. <laughs> Obviously, I'm going to give the baby to her. <laughs> like, come on. And so he gives the baby to the woman who, who does not want her son killed. And so we see this, this wisdom of God being displayed in Solomon. And so this is how we're introduced to Solomon. We're given uh, these details, these interesting details about his life that kind of lead us to go, okay, he's, got, he's not totally perfect, but he's good in a lot of ways. And then we see that he asks for wisdom, which the Lord is really pleased by. And then we see that God really did give him that wisdom, that he, he does all these sorts of things to, to display that wisdom, uh, as particularly in this situation. And so, like I said earlier, I think when we read through characters in the Bible and get to know characters in the Bible, we can get to know God. And as I was just reading through chapter 3 over the last few weeks, or however long I've been reading through it, uh, what stood out to me was just these different moments that Solomon is having with God, and I felt like it helped me to get to know God more. It helped me to see things about God that, that maybe aren't obvious to us, but I think are definitely happening in the text. And so I want to talk about these three things that Solomon's intro here shows us about who God is. And the first thing is this. God wants to give his wisdom. God wants to give his wisdom, right? Here in this story, God happily gives his wisdom to Solomon when he asks for it. He's like overjoyed to give Solomon this sort of wisdom. And then it reminds me of this verse in James that's to all of us as Christians. James 1.5, it says this, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. God wants to give his wisdom to us. Wisdom in the Bible, it's, it's really about how best to live in a world full of brokenness. Really, how to be godly in a world full of brokenness. And so the fact that God is excited about giving us wisdom, I think, it, for me, it shows how loving God is. Like, God knows how broken confusing, sinful this world is, 
and he knows that that makes things complicated, that makes life complicated, that makes living life complicated, and so he is overjoyed to give us wisdom and so that we can live in this complicated, broken, sinful, hurting world. God is a loving Father who wants to guide us and protect us and help us by giving us his actual wisdom for life. It might seem, that might seem like a minor thing to you, but it, it just isn't to me. Like God sees where we're at. He knows what we're going through. And rather than just give us a bunch of rules on how to live, he's like, I want to give you wisdom on how to live because of how complicated this world is. God is a loving father who wants to give us wisdom. He's overjoyed to give us wisdom, which I think means this. You and I can ask God the Father for wisdom all the time, and he will give it. I don't know exactly how that works when we pray for wisdom and how God gives it. I think it probably looks different for each of us. I know for me sometimes, I'll just kind of be praying for wisdom over a course of a few weeks. All of a sudden, ideas pop in my head that are way smarter than anything I could come up with. Right? I think that's the spirit. I don't think I'm that smart. Actually, I know I'm not that smart, okay? I can't draw a straight line with a ruler. Like, I, I, I struggle in this world. But God wants to give us wisdom. He's excited about giving us wisdom. It's church. Well, I think what this story kind of shows and reminds us of is we have a Father in heaven who is overjoyed to give us wisdom. He, he wants to give us wisdom. All right, the second thing I think we see about God in this story uh, in this introduction of Solomon, is God is far more gracious than I think he is. God is far more gracious than I think he is. Here's why. Solomon's worshiping at the high places. Solomon's worshiping at the high places, which again means his worship of Yahweh was mixed in some way. Right? He might have been purely just offering a sacrifice only to Yahweh, but there was some part of it that was mixed up, and he should have known from God's word that it shouldn't get mixed up like that. Solomon had already been making mistakes in, in a few different ways, as the author lets us in on. And yet, God shows up to Solomon in a dream, offering him a wish. I think sometimes we get this picture of God who's just ready to punch us, just like quick to punch us, right? Like if I'm honest, if I'm reading this story and, and, and someone was like, okay, write the verse four and five, I would be like, and then God came and punched Solomon in the face. Like that's what I, that's how, unfortunately, like they, that's how I view God. And yet what actually happens is God is much quicker to show grace and love to Solomon and mercy Solomon has mixed worship. He's sinfully living in certain ways. And God shows up and says, I want to grace you with more of me. I want to grace you with myself. It reminds me of this verse in, in Isaiah 28. And this is one of my favorite verses in all the Bible. But it talks through, in Isaiah 20, 28, I want to say it's verse 15. I could be wrong there. It talks about how God is going to judge a, a couple different people groups. But what it says about God's judgment is that it's strange is this deed. Strange is this work, based on your translation. Alien is this work. Foreign is this deed to him. What Isaiah 28, 15 is trying to help us see about God is, yes, God does judge sin. But that's not his first flinch. 
To judge sin is not his first flinch. The, judging sin and bringing judgment, that's strange to God. That's foreign to God. God's first flinch is love. God's first flinch is grace. God's first flinch is mercy. And we see it here in this story. His first flinch with Solomon isn't to slap him upside the head. His first flinch with him is, Solomon, what can I do for you? How can I grace you with some sort of a gift that will help you? What do you want? What do you need? And so to me, this story, it just highlights we have a God of grace, of mercy. God would rather give us himself. God would rather be patient with us. God would rather give us good things than punch us. It's his strange work to bring judgment. It is his work. He does bring judgment because he's a just God. But it's strange to him. It's foreign. It's alien to him. If, that, if you have a hard time with that, it's just, I'm just quoting the Bible. God's first flinch is grace, love, mercy. And I just see his gentleness and grace and patience to Solomon here. And, and I'm just reminded how God has met me in so many times where I, of my own seasons of boneheadedness and sinfulness. And, and God still showed up into my life in all sorts of ways. He, he, God wanted to show up to me in all sorts of ways and show me grace in spite of myself, in spite of seasons where I didn't deserve it. God is a God of grace. And some of you shame dwellers need to hear that louder than I can say it. God is a God of grace. His first flinch is love. His first flinch is grace. His first flinch is patience. That's who God is. And you see it all throughout the Old Testament. It's just not very obvious to us at times. To me, it's obvious in this story. Okay, finally, something else we see about God here is God loves humility. God loves humility. Uh, it, to me, humility in the Bible, it's three things. This is just my definition. Uh, humility is understanding our utter need for God. It's practicing a way of reliance on God, and it's understanding our own human limitations. It's not this sort of false vanity that says, oh, I'm not really good at that, when you're actually really good at that, right? Oh, I'm not this or that, or like, that, that's not, that's just false vanity. I think humility is really understanding our need for God, and that we need to rely on him, and that we have limitations in our own selves, and time and time and time again in the Bible, we see that God loves humility. He loves humility. Solomon, in this story, is clearly showing some level of humility. I can't figure this out on my own, God. Please help me to figure this out. If you go to the beginning of 1 Samuel, uh, there, there's this mother who sings this prayer. And it's a prayer all about how God wants to lift up the low, take care of the low, exalt the humble, and bring down the arrogant. Humble the arrogant. God loves humility. That is just something about God that we could see in this story. And I think th this idea of humility, I think it's so crucial to, to finding God. 
It's crucial to us finding God. If you operate in a way that says you yourself can provide all your own needs, it often leads to an arrogance that makes you think you have no need for God. But if you could be honest with yourself, if you could be honest about your life, if you could be honest about your story, you'll be able to see all these moments in your life where you couldn't provide for yourself, where you couldn't protect yourself, where you couldn't save yourself. And if you could see those for what they are, that will humble you because all of a sudden you'll realize, man, there's all these needs and things that I can't do for myself that I wish I could do for myself. And I think that humility can push you towards God. It can push you towards God, and God will lift off that, that weight of self-provision on you. Humility isn't he- he- heavy. Arrogance is. Humility is not heavy. Arrogance is. When you walk around arrogantly, even if you're not being obviously arrogant, even if you don't think of yourself as arrogant, when you walk around that way, your life is more heavy. You have a heavy yoke on your shoulders because you have to carry everything yourself. When you understand your need for God and how you need to rely on him, that brings you to a humble place and it's not as heavy because you get to go, okay, God, please lift this for me. God, please help me with this. God loves Humility, and I, I, there's something about humility all throughout the Bible that helps us to see God more clearly, helps us to find him. I remember a few years ago, there was a guy in our church who wasn't a Christian. He was coming because uh, he liked a girl here, and so he was actually dating a girl here. And so we're, I'm evangelizing to him a lot. And, and one day he said he, he was walking away from a sermon, and he looks literally in the mirror, and he just goes, I realize I can't be my own God. And he, and he looks in the mirror and he's like, I realize I got all this stuff about me that I just can't change on my own. Like as much as I try, as much as I think about it, I just can't change. And he didn't become a Christian right then, but that was a pretty huge moment because he was humbled. Because he saw these things about himself and about his life that he could not change. And so it began to cause him to cry out for the one that could, the one that loves humility. And so there's something about humility that does something to us, that helps us see God more clearly, especially in a culture that applauds individualism, applauds self-sustained strength. We should not be afraid of becoming humble. I'll even be honest, like there's part of me that doesn't want to preach these aspects of humility because of how much that individualism and self-sustaining strength is like in my veins from growing up in this world and in this culture. But God loves humility. And humility, for some reason, it helps us to see the God of all power. I think sin has often twisted us into thinking we are like God, as Genesis says but in a sense that we have no need for anyone but ourself. Like we trick ourselves into thinking we're like God in that way. Humility helps us see we're not like God in that way. We were created for him and for others. So church, seek humility. God loves humility. 
And so those are some of the things that I think that we can learn about God by looking at Solomon, like one of God's kids, kind of showing us all these things about who God is. He's a God who wants and loves to give wisdom. He's a God who prefers to give grace and love. And he's a God who loves humility. Which, by the way, Jesus, the Son of God, when he took on flesh, God in the flesh, he became embodied wisdom. Jesus, the Son of God, humbled himself so much that he went out from the kingdom of heaven and came to earth to bring the kingdom of heaven, taking on human flesh, humbling himself. Jesus, the Son of God, through the cross and the resurrection, offers all his love and grace to us. And I think that God's worthy to be praised. Amen, church? Amen. Let's pray. God, thank you for who you are. Thank you for showing yourself and just how you interact with Solomon. I I feel, God, often when I read the scriptures, I, I... You are not the God I expect you to be because of my own formulations and thoughts about you. And so, God, thank you for displaying who you are despite uh, me and many others who would rather see you as something else or it's just been ingrained in us to see you as something else. And so, God, this morning as, uh, as we see this introduction to, to Solomon, I, I pray that, that we glean from it everything you want us to glean. God, most of all, I really just truly hope that there are people in here who are drawing closer to you or understanding you more because of what your spirit is doing in us through your word and and through the the active Holy Spirit in, in this room, in us right now. And so God, help us to see you're a God that loves to give wisdom. Help us to ask for wisdom when we need it. Help us to see that you're a God that that loves grace, loves mercy prefers patience. God, I want to pray for the people in this room, the shame dwellers, God, in this room who who don't think that's true about you, God. Would you use your word even to help them see that that's true? Would you do something in their hearts so that their shame can be covered by the blood of Jesus? And God, help us to be a humble church. Time and time again, there are poems, there are songs, there are prayers by people throughout the Bible essentially praying that you are a God of humility who is with people of humble estate and will bring down the arrogant. And so God, I pray we are people of humble estate and not arrogant people. But Lord, if we are arrogant, bring us down. Bring us down in the way that you want us to so that we find more of you and experience more of you and know more of you. So, Lord, we love you and we need you. Amen.